most of you know that I have been a professional carpenter. Uh, professional being a relative term for my entire adult working life. In fact, I started working as a sort of carpenter for my father's construction company before I was old enough to drive sharpening stakes for foundations before they, you could buy them that way. Um, such a modern convenience when we got them. And as such, Aaron and I have only lived in homes that I have built for over 40 years now. Um, and my children have never lived in one that I did, uh, didn't build until they graduated college and moved off into housing of their own. Now being this involved in the building trades, Aaron has always been interested in the process of design and decorating. Uh, this has involved years of reading design books and watching relevant TV shows. And uh, today most of those shows are on HGTV, Home and Garden uh, Television. But back in the Pleistocene era, there was just one show. It was called This Old House, and it was on PBS. The host on this old house back then annoyed me greatly. He really did. Because he thought he knew everything about building, but I know everything about building, and he doesn't. But what really got under my skin was their advisor on carpentry. Now, don't get me wrong, the man was affable, and he really did know his stuff. But um, what chapped my spurs, or however that saying goes, was how he was referred to on the show. Every time they introduced this fellow, they called him, and here is so-and-so master carpenter. Now, you know about me and words that I really, really like to, to narrow these things, to, to use them correctly. Master carpenter is a made-up term. There is no term in the U.S for a master carpenter. Um, journeyman carpenter was as high as it goes. And I had a journeyman car uh, card from the Carpenters Union, and basically to be a journeyman was the highest on the pay scale for a union carpenter. I've had one of those since I was 21, 22 years old. Journeyman carpenter, therefore, is the title for the highest ranked carpenter in America. So the term journeyman comes from the medieval European trade guilds, which do have a level of master carpenter that almost nobody attains nowadays because it's so hard to do the work to do that. Someone wishing to be a carpenter in the medieval trade guilds and today would apprentice themselves for one year to a reputable craftsman in that trade. After one year, after gaining skills, the apprentice would then be required to go on a three-year and one-day journey across Europe, apprenticing themselves for a time to firms or people in uh, working in various carpentry trades. You might, at one point of time, work with a cabinet maker, learning basics of cabinetry. You might work for a joiner. A joiner makes windows and doors and floors and stuff like that. Furniture maker. 
Perhaps you would work for an instrument maker. All of these were part of the learning of a journeyman learning his uh, craft. Stair builder, finish carpenter, all of these things fall there. After their three-year journey through Europe, they had enough skills to be called a journeyman. If they wanted the classification of master, the highest level of their craft, they had to build and submit something at the highest level of their skill to the guild. It was called your masterpiece, okay? Uh, which is, frankly, where we get that term from. You would have to submit your masterpiece to the guild. Uh, decades ago, decades ago, I was contacted by a Swiss carpenter on his journey around the world, working for different firms, and for some reason, he contacted me to work with, and I could not afford to hire him. And I was sorry I couldn't offer him the employment uh, because I was sure I would learn more from him than he would from me because of his experience across the world. Uh, one more little tidbit about the word journeyman. Uh, since you know how much I like correcting mistranslated Latin, Greek, and Hebrew words, uh, journeyman does not come from the fact that your apprentice takes a journey throughout Europe or around the world. It has nothing to do with the journey. So where does journeyman come from? It comes, Robin's sitting here, it comes from the French word journée, a day of work. Because a journeyman was a daily worker. He was to be paid every day. He was not the owner of the firm. He was not a salaried employer. He was doing a journée, a day of work, for a day paid labor. I just love these things when they come together like this because journeyman could have meant that you went on a journey, right? Because that's what you did. But it had nothing to do with that. I love, I love language. Our passage in Acts today deals both with a man who has claimed a title a job description that does not apply to him, but also to his seven sons, itinerant or journeying exorcists. And I love that. They are practitioners on a journey of a certain craft. Last week, we ended our passage in Acts this way in Acts 19, 11 through 12. And if you want, I'll pause for one second. Acts 19, 11 through 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And now continuing on, we're covering verses 13 through 20 in Acts 19 today. And I'll read that through, and then we'll go, by it line, go through it line by line. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Get the, get the language there. I adjure you 
by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I've mentioned before that Ephesus, being the center of worship of Artemis, also known as Diana, that that city was alive with the practice of magic. And it's no coincidence that where there's demon worship uh, in the form of worshiping pagan gods, there would also be magicians busy with deceiving the gullibles. And that's what most, that's what most of the exorcists were. They were magicians plying their trade. Uh, they no more knew how to cast out an evil spirit. We've already seen Paul have a run-in with a magician on his first missionary journey when he and Barnabas preached in Barnabas' home country of, uh, of um, Cyprus. That man, Bar-Jesus, who was no, also known as Elimus, to, to remind you of that, is described in chapter 13 as a Jewish false prophet and magician. So, a Jewish false prophet and magician. When Elimus opposed the two missionaries, Paul, through the power of the Lord, caused Elimus to become blind. And earlier in Acts chapter 8, uh, when, when the Apostle Peter was sent down to check on Philip's uh, mission to the Samaritans, um, they ran into a man that we know as Simon Magus. Uh, who was also a magician. Now Simon was in Samaria. We're not sure if he was a Samaritan or a Jew or what he was. But he was a magician also, despite Jewish law in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. And it's surprising from what Deuteronomy says in 18, 9, uh, 18, 9 through 12, if you want to turn there, that there were anybody practicing magic in Israel. We remember Saul and the necromancer. A necromancer was just another fortune teller or magician. Because in De Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12, once again, it says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, a child sacrifice, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer 
or one who inquires of the dead. And that sort of covers all of the magic arts right there. I think that's a pretty inclusive list. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So the list is sorcerer or interprets omens or tells fortunes or practices divination or a charmer or a medium. So pretty comprehensive list there. Of, and yet we're finding here with Paul Jewish exorcists or Jewish magicians because they did not know exorcism. So it was not just against, not just pagan magicians that Paul had to deal with, but apostatized Jewish ones as well. Their Jewishness helping to lead others astray, including other Jews. Verse 13a reads, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, and we'll stop there for just a moment. Um, I've said before in the case of the slave girl fortune teller uh, in Philippi that Paul set free from her demon and was imprisoned for it, that in a demon-possessed society, demon possession is a plus. It's not looked down on, but not always. Sometimes it gets out of a hand. I don't know which one of my, my uh, commentators said this because I didn't write it down in my sermon, but Satan revels in chaos. He is the, divide, the house divided against itself that will not stand because you can have people acting against each other and still both be Satan-controlled, demon-possessed. Satan is not a, a god of order, even a small g god of order. He is chaos. So common was demon possession that exorcists the word meaning to bind with an oath, by the way. An exorcist is one who basically, if you're a godly, you're speaking the word of God to bind the demon. But exorcism is to bind with an oath. And they were plentiful, both among the pagans, their magicians were trying to cast out demons, and among Jews. You'll recall Jesus casting out demons. So he too was an exorcist, though he was much more than that. All of verse 13 together reads, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Note that the Jewish exorcists did not believe in Jesus. They were not Christian believers. Uh, they didn't really know who Jesus was, and, and we've run across that in, in this third missionary journey of Paul's, that he's running across pockets of sincere Jewish believers who are following John, for instance, uh, John the Baptist, that they did not know about the Holy Spirit. They did not know about Jesus. They knew that Paul was proclaiming that somebody greater than him was coming, but they did not know who it was. So these were not believers, but they had all seen the power associated with Paul. And remember, Paul, though he may have been doing it, 
But as we are looking at this, it says that people were just getting his sweat rags and his aprons that had been around his waist and taking them and applying them to the sick and the demon-possessed. It was not Paul who was going out to do that, but people had seen the power of Paul and were trying to latch on to it for themselves. And that's what these exorcists were doing. Exorcists back then relied on incantations and powerful names. This was, they thought there was power in spells, in incantations, and in names. And Jewish exorcists were particularly well received in pagan lands because they had a name they would not pronounce. Okay? And the pagans thought, wow, if they won't even pronounce the name of their god, this is the most powerful magic there is. And then they see <clears throat> Paul preaching Jesus. And they're, they're latching on to this idea that the Jews have a name that they won't pronounce. And Paul is pronouncing Jesus. And so these Jewish exorcists were thought to be especially powerful. And this reluctance to not pronounce God's name has been well known uh, since the diaspora because the Jews always practiced this the same way that they would not speak God's name, write it down or anything. So this is well known throughout pagan lands. Some of the incantations and spells of exorcisms have come down to us, by the way, in papyruses. We have the papyruses that mention some of the ways to cast out demons. One of these, known as the Paris... I'm just telling you what it's called in my book. The Paris Magical Papyrus, number 574. Okay. The Paris Magical Papyrus, number 574, says this. And listen to the language here. I adjure you by Jesus the God of the Hebrews. That was the incantation, incantation they were using there. I adjure you by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. And what did we just have here before? Uh, I adjure you by the Jesus whom God, uh, whom Paul proclaims. And this papyrus has come down through the years. Now, I don't know how many papyruses named came down through the years. This is number 574. I do not know if they numbered it as they were doing this or if we have 574 papyruses. I could not find that out. But we do know that they believed in it and we also know that Jews were using the name of Jesus to heal. Jewish rabbis were using the name of Jesus to heal because they felt it was a powerful name. Hillam, uh, chapter 2, 22 through 23, which is in the Jewish uh, top setup. Now, it is not in the Mishnah, but the top setup was other rab rabbinical writings adjacent to the Mishnah to explain murky passages. Okay, 
The Mishnah was to explain the oral law of God. This is to explain, this is Jewish writing attached to the Mishnah to explain murky passages of the Mishnah. And um, the website My Jewish Learning, which is a real, it, it's not as juvenile as the name sounds like My Jewish Learning. It's actually a respected Jewish website. Hillam 2, 22-23 says that Jewish rabbis should not heal in the name of Jesus. Okay? And this is dating from the 200s to 300s AD. That they had to write down that Jewish rabbis should not heal in the name of Jesus. Thereby proving that the practice did occur among the Jews just as we see it with this exorcism here. So here is in verse 13 we see uh, Jewish exorcists trying to cast out demons by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Verse 14 says seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Your translation may say uh, chief priest instead of high priest. They made that change because it is certain that there was no Jewish high priest named Sceva. So they changed that to chief priest. However, nobody has been able to find any mention of Sceva anywhere at all. There was not a high priest, neither was there a chief priest of that name. Scholars speculate charitably that Sceva may have been from a high priestly family. But most think, being so far from Jerusalem, he simply adopted the title for advertising for his exorcist business with his seven sons, okay? Nobody was going back to Jerusalem to check on who Sceva was, so he proclaimed himself a, high, a Jewish high priest, and his sons were therefore doing his work under that name. Remember, of course, Jewish exorcists were highly desired, so how much more so exorcists whose sons, who were sons of a Jewish high priest. Verse 15 says, But the evil spirit answered them, saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Reading this verse, I immediately thought back to when I was around 12. We had a neighborhood bully where I was growing up. He was a tough, he had a strong jaw. Ask me how I know. Uh, one day he was up to his usual bullying and uh, picking on the smaller kid and his sister who was my age, but uh, still a girl. And I'd finally had enough and said, why don't you pick on someone your own age, or your own size? And he um, looked me up and down slowly. And this little gleam came into his eye and he said, you mean, like you? <laughs> and the word that came to mind was, uh-oh. <laughs> well, right here. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, are, but who are you? And they must have thought, uh-oh. Verse 16 says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
The supernatural strength of the demon-possessed man proved far too much even for the seven sons of Sceva, despite their obvious numerical advantage. And I have often heard of people who were possessed, you could not control them. They were, they were, there's a lot about the human body we don't know. You'll hear about a son finding his father trapped under a car after an accident, lifting the car off of him. There is something beyond us in strength and demons can provide that supernatural strength that we see here because this is seven against one and they did not win. They were driven away, naked and bleeding, humiliated before the entire city of Ephesus, unable to exercise the demon or to subdue the man. Verse 17 says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You know, they say that bad news travels fast, but I'm here to tell you that not nearly as fast as salacious gossip about the sons of Sceva and the Jewish high priest being beaten and, and stripped naked and sent into the streets. That spread like wildfire. Everyone heard about it whether Jew or Greek. It says fear fell on all the city, uh, but that would be not a fear for personal safety, but instead a fear of the Lord, a fear of a righteous God that they did not yet fully understand. It was the fear of God that was put into them, but not a physical fear. Verse 18 says also, Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And so, these new Christians had not given up their magic. But now, seeing what had happened, they have come forward. And, and I told you that the magicians and the people using spells and incantations thought that doing these things in a certain way was important. Well, once you used a spell in public or told what the words were, those spells were no longer any good. It's what was believed at that time by these people bringing forward, divulging their practices, the magic. Just recently I was watching uh, some common magic tricks and showing it from behind the magician what he's doing. And these, these tricks that you couldn't figure out were nothing. They weren't even sleight of hand. They were, they were childish, okay? And yet put on by a magician and who can't, when you can't see his hands looked like something amazing, and they weren't. Now I know how those tricks are done. This is not going to be any fun anymore, okay? Well, it's the same thing with magical spells or incantations. Once they are spoken in public, they are no good anymore. And, and a number of people brought these practices forward, told the uh, church and the people what these practices were, what the spells were, and suddenly a big dent is being done to the magic practice in Ephesus. Now seeing the power of Jesus Christ over, demon, over demons, these people confess their unbelief but it is of note 
that these new Christians had not given up their magic when they had first become Christians. You may remember when I was preaching about Christmas and saying that Christians did not come and remove the practices in the society. It was make them Christians and then the people voluntarily gave it up later on. This is what's happening here. People believed in the pagans of Ephesus believed in Jesus Christ because of Paul's preaching without giving up magic practices. And you'd think, wow, how can you do that? Well, because now we're waiting on the Lord to change their hearts and to change their lives into truly Christian lives. As they matured in their faith, they gave up the practice of magic through the strength of the Holy Spirit. But these former pagan magicians did not just reveal the spells and incantations and the practices. Verse 19 says, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How many books of magic actually exist? Like I say, uh, Paris, Paris Magic uh, Papyrus number 718 or something. Lots of them existed. The former practitioners of magic gathered up their books and brought them to be publicly burned. They did not say, trust me, I got rid of them, okay? They brought them, showed them, had them burned, and the worth of those papyri was estimated to be 50,000. Uh, my version says uh, pieces of silver. Uh, other versions say uh, denarius or drachma. Um, all had relatively the same worth. A denarius was, or a piece of silver was a day's wage. Your journey, okay? It was your, a man's day's wage. 50,000 would, would supply 100 families for almost two years of their living expenses. That's what was burned, the value, the value of that which was burned up. This was their commitment to their new faith. And verse 20 concludes, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This demonstration not just of Paul's, but of the power of demons opposing common people and being able to take on seven, but the name of Jesus being shown to uh, control that, made the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Now, sometimes, assuming a title, such as Jewish high priest, you know, or a Jewish exorcist or, or master carpenter really has no further ramifications. So you, there is no harm done by this old house having a master carpenter other than it gets under my skin, okay? But other times, however, such as with the sons of Sceva, those journeyman exorcists claiming something that is not yours can result in some more serious consequences, in their case, a severe beating. 
Uh, John MacArthur says that these so-called exorcists thought that Paul's use of the Holy Spirit amounted to no more than their own fakery and demonic activity and that, it could, that Jesus could be manipulated for their own deceitful ends. Uh, thus they attempted to use the name of Jesus like a magician's spell or incantation. But he continues on to point out that the name of Jesus is no magical charm to be used by whoever wants to. They may have fooled the people of Asia Minor, but not the demon that they were confronting. The name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is delegated to Christians alone. Paul could use it. Paul could speak in the name of Jesus. He could heal in the name of Jesus. We are people called by his name. We are Christians. We are called by Jesus' name. As Christians, this is um, our, I was going to say birthright. This is our rebirth right. It is our right to use the name of Jesus Christ when we preach. Use the name of Christ when we pray. Don't we almost always end saying in the name of Jesus Christ? When we live as called according to his purpose. This is our calling, not a magician's. This is our calling, not a Jewish high priest. This is our calling. This is our purpose. This is our commission from the very mouth of Jesus Christ. We are to live in the power of his name and no demon nor, as scripture says, the very gates of hell will prevail against God's church, which we all are. No one else can take that name. We have it. And it is not a spell and it's not an incantation. It's the name of the living God. Let's close in prayer.